when Sean is assigning these, uh, this, our preaching calendar, he always, he knows that I like really small passages because I like to really look at the text and turn over every text. And so he's, he's given us this long chunk today that I'm going to try to work through. Um, but if we don't get all the way there, forgive me. I'm going to start by praying and, uh, and then we'll just dive into the text. So let me pray for us. Father, I do pray, as Sean was praying for me just a moment ago, that you would keep me and all of us this morning just under the waterfall of your grace, that as we sit in the book of Isaiah and we hear these magnificent truths of the coming servant as he saw him, the servant who came as we now see him, that we would stand in awe of his beauty, of his grace, of his mercy, his compassion upon us, his great condescension, leaving the halls of glory to come to this lowly earth that he might redeem us and restore us. Let us cherish him and value him this morning. I pray that your word will go forth with clarity, that it would accomplish the purpose for which you send it, and we will not return to you void. Be with us, convict us, stir us up, spur us on to greater holiness and faithfulness in you, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. So recently, I read the book Unbroken. And if you don't know, it's about a man named Louis Zamperini, who was an Italian-American who, who flew as a bombardier in the United States um, Army Air Forces during World War II. And his story is remarkable. He crashed, actually, um, in the Pacific Ocean, and only he and one other crew member uh, aboard survived. And they were adrift at sea for 47 days, survived that, and were eventually captured by the Japanese and were a prisoner of war for two years, surviving that as well, both of them. I want to start out this morning by just reading you a selection from this book. When Louis and Phil is the name of his... Um, friend, his fellow soldier, are out at deep sea. At this point in the book, they've been drifting on their raft for about 40 days. It says, one morning, they woke to a strange stillness. The rise and fall of the raft had ceased, and it sat virtually motionless. There was no wind. The ocean stretched out in all directions in glossy smoothness regarding the sky and reflecting its image in crystalline perfection. Like the ancient mariner, Louis and Phil had found the eerie pause of wind and water that lingers around the equator. They were, as Coleridge wrote, as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. It was an experience of transcendence. Phil watched the sky, whispering that it looked like a pearl, the water looked so solid that it seemed they could walk across it. When a fish broke the surface far away, the sound carried to the men with absolute clarity. They watched as pristine ringlets of water circled outward around the place where the fish had passed, then faded to stillness. For a while they spoke, sharing their wonder. Then they fell into reverent silence. Their suffering was suspended they weren't hungry or thirsty. They were unaware of the approach of death. 
This description reminds me of where we are here in the book of Isaiah at this point in chapter 51, because as you're reading through the book of Isaiah, once you cross the threshold of of chapter 40, it's like crossing the, the barrier reef that separates the lagoon that's more narrow and familiar and venturing out deeper into the vast and endless ocean of prophetic revelation. The more specific prophetic oracles of the early chapters of Isaiah give way to a more figurative and colorful language as Isaiah gradually focuses in on this shadowy figure, the Christ, the servant of God, that will come about 700 years after Isaiah lives, who will come and will ransom the people from their sin and will continue to reign throughout eternity. We're in chapter 51 now, so we're way past that threshold. We're, it's like we're out deep in the middle of the ocean, just drifting and surrounded by the ocean of God's revelation. Today we're actually on, it's as if we're riding a particular wave of, of Isaiah's revelation. Uh, I want to put up a picture that to, to show you the intricate design of how the section is laid out that we're going to be walking through today to help you get more of a feel of the contours of of just this passage. So I brought my handy-dandy laser pointer. And yes, I did use my kids' Door of the Explorer color pencils to draw this. But listen, so this is a diagram that I made up of like the passage that we're walking through. At the top is the chapters of Isaiah that we're walking through, starting in 51, moving from left to right through 52. These are the verses of those chapters, starting in verse 1 of chapter 51, moving all the way through the end of chapter 51 here into 52, down through 52, verse 12. And this section of material, it's like a whole section of material within the book of Isaiah that really divides into eight different sections or eight different oracles. You can see here at the bottom, okay? And you see it's sort of symmetrical. It rises to a crescendo right in the middle and then begins to fall off the side. So let me tell you, show you a little bit what I'm talking about in the book. So these first three sections in Isaiah are all identified by the fact that they open with a command from God to the people to listen to him, and then he refers to them in two different titles. So if you were to look at chapter 51, verse 1, he says, listen to me. It's God speaking to his people, and he refers to them in two different ways. You who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Jump down to verse 4 of chapter 51. Again, he says, this is Oracle 2. Give attention to me, another way of saying, listen to me. My people, give ear to me, my nation. Finally, the third oracle in verse 7. Listen to me, in the two references. You who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. In these opening three oracles, God is repeating the same basic command to the people to listen to him, to give ear to him as he tells them about the promises of salvation that he's going to fulfill when he sends his servant into this world. And if you've been with us any number of times, we'll always tell you that anytime you see repetition in the scriptures, it's as if momentum is building in the text. Emphasis is rising. God is shouting louder and louder as he moves through this text. So that's why it's sort of like a buildup of of intensity, of emotion as you're moving through these sections. This is actually what Travis covered last week, moving through uh, 51 all the way up to verse 8. And so 
where we're starting at today is inserting ourselves right here. God has been saying, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. And the people finally respond to God now, starting in verse 9. This is the, the fourth oracle of the book. God says, listen to me, pay attention to me, listen to me. And the people respond together. Let's pick it up in verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? So there, there's our people who are afraid, they're timid, they're weak, they're back and forth, they're not fully trusting God and his word. And so there's that double command there to God. They're saying, awake, awake. It's like they're intensely saying, wake up, God. We feel like you're not here. We feel like we can't see you. Why is it taking you so long to fulfill these promises? Wake up. Put on strength, O arm of the Lord, as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. And then you have this obscure reference at the end of verse 9. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you might say, I, what is he talking about there? I don't, when did he cut a figure named Rahab into pieces, and who is this dragon that we read about or that he's talking about here? Well, what Isaiah is doing here is he's alluding to ancient myths of, that, the, that the surrounding ancient Near Eastern nations around Israel held to. So Israel believed, and we believe, that in terms of the creation of the world, that there is one God who created all things, created heaven and earth. The surrounding nations around Israel, they believe that there, yes, there is a creator God, but they believe that there were these other gods as well that were like rivaling forces against the creator God. And the only way that the creator God could create order and, and balance in the universe is to defeat these chaotic, um, uh, these rivaling gods. And some of their names were like the Egyptians referred to Rahab as a great sea monster of the sea. The Babylonians referred to Tiamat, the dragon, as the great sea monster of the sea that God needed to conquer to tame the seas. Now, the, now, Isaiah and the Jews don't believe in these myths, but what came to happen over the period of time is they began to refer and look back to the Exodus as an example of God taming the seas, the quote-unquote um, forces of nature that the surrounding nations believed to be controlled by other gods, but Israel did not. So you can see example of this in chapter 30 of Isaiah, verse 7. It'll just be up on the screen God says, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahav, Rahab, who sits still. And so Israel uses these mythical names to really allude back to the Exodus. These big, magnificent, powerful names that were known throughout that region. And it's, it's thrown upon Israel and Pharaoh and the way that God conquered Israel. God conquered the Egyptians in the Exodus. It's stated more explicitly in verse 10. He says, Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? So the people are saying, wake up, God, wake up. You're saying that you're going to deliver us, that you're going to save us, and yet it's taking you so long. And yet, wasn't it you back in the Exodus that did that very thing? You showed up in a moment, and you parted the seas, and you tamed Pharaoh's army? Wake up, do it again. 
They're impatient. They're questioning him. And when they refer to him, they use a, a peculiar title, the arm of the Lord, there in the beginning of verse 9. When they cry to him, they say, wake up, O arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord is, is a vivid metaphor that occurs throughout the Old Testament texts. And it's such an interesting title because clearly God's arm is part, is part of God the Father, right? Your arm is part of your body, right? But Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the more and more that this term is used, it seems to be that it's referred to as something almost distinct from God the Father. It's part of God the Father and yet distinct from God the Father, this arm of the Lord. Let me give you a few examples. Exodus 15, 16, once God delivers the people of Israel out of Egypt, Moses sings the song of celebration. And in verse 16 of chapter 15, he says, Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. Your arm caused this. Psalm 89, verses 10 through 13. You don't have to flip through there. They'll be on the screen. The arm of the Lord causes creation and the crushing of God's enemies. You crushed Rahab, Rahab, another reference to Egypt. Like a carcass, you scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it. You have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High is your right hand. So that seems normal enough. God is accomplishing these great feats by his arm. And then there's places like Isaiah 63, 12, referring to God that says, God, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name. God here caused his arm to go with Moses. It's a bit awkward of a phrasing there. All of these references build up to a crescendo that that reaches a crescendo in Isaiah 53, verse 1 and 2 and following. Isaiah, as he ends, draws near to the end of his revelation, he says in 53 verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. What he's saying is, what I'm seeing right now In my revelation looking into the future, you're not going to believe. This arm of the Lord figure, this arm of the Lord that we've been celebrating, the might of the Lord, it's actually a person. The mighty arm of the Lord that delivered us from Egypt, that crushed Rahab, that scattered our enemies, that laid the foundation of the world is a person. Not only that, but this mighty one is going to grow up before us, tender, quietly, unassuming, unimpressive in appearance. But this is the mighty arm of the Lord, the Christ. And so when the people are crying out, wake up, wake up, O arm of the Lord, ultimately what they're saying is, Christ, come. Accomplish your redemption, redeem us, save us, so that, in verse 11, 
The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing or literally just loud cries of joy. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Is that the ache of your heart? That is the hope of God's people. Or it ought to be. Everlasting joy. Gladness and joy. No more sorrow, no more sighing, no more disappointment, no more sickness, no more death. Well, he's secured it in Christ as he promised the people that he would in Isaiah. So that's the people's cry to God in Oracle 4. Hopefully, yep, still got it. Oracle 4, right here. So that's the people's cry to God, verses 9 through 11, and you can see sort of the way that this thing rises, that it reaches a, a peak right here. Verse 12 in this fifth section here is when God responds to the people, verses 12 through 16. God responds to this great cry of the people for him to come and to accomplish his plan of salvation. Verse 12, it's at an apex now. It's like the peak of the crest of the wave. God responds, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like grass? All the time, at this time, the Israelite people are, when Isaiah is writing, they're actually in exile. They're under a foreign regime. And so they legitimately do face the threat of death. Their lives could be taken away from them. And so that's contributing to this fear, this sense of urgency for God to come and deliver them. Death is imminent. But God says, why are you afraid of other men who die? They're like the grass of the field that's here one day and gone the next. Could they physically kill you? Is that possible? Yes, they could. But it's almost as if God says, and so what? if you lose your life in this world. Don't you know who you are, who you belong to? Now, that's the sense of the text, and, and I'm actually going to return to that and unpack it further once we get all the way down to the end of this section, verse 16. So let's move on for now. Verse 13, God goes on. He says, You have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens, and laid the foundation of the earth, and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? And that last line is as if God is saying, this, the power and the fierceness of the enemy that you're so afraid of is almost in, undiscernible to me. It's, it's off my radar. It is nothing in comparison to who I am and my power. It's as if he says, look outside, look at the ground and the skies that I created and, and the world beyond, this world that I created, all these mighty demonstrations of my power in creating the world. Who are they that they are to be feared? You have forgotten me. When you forget me, when you cease to draw near to me, when you cease to reflect on my word, when you cease to, to sing to me, to pray to me, to draw near is when fear reigns in your heart, worry, anxiousness, all every other vice of sin. 
But God does not leave us in this condition. He goes on, verse 14. He who is bowed down. Those of you who are under the weight of sin and captivity and enslaved shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. The pit's a reference for the holding place of the dead beyond the physical world, apart from Christ. You shall not be apart from the Christ, neither shall his bread be lacking. Speaking primarily not just of physical sustenance, but spiritual sustenance. I will always sustain you. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. With this last line of verse 15, it says, if he says, yes, I am the Lord that delivered my people from Egypt in the Exodus, out of the clutches of Pharaoh, but I didn't just push back the waves as if I were combating other rival gods. I'm the one who causes the waves themselves to roar. I am in control of all things. The Lord of hosts is his name. And then in verse 16, as he concludes this section, he's actually is as if he's turning from the people of God and now turning and addressing the servant. It's a little bit clearer to see that shift of reference in the Hebrew, but nevertheless, he's turning in verse 16. He's referencing, he's speaking to the servant. This is a, a, a speech from the father to the son, ultimately. Verse 16, he says, I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand. Establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. When he says, I've placed my words in your mouth, he's saying that when this figure comes, when this servant comes, when he's raised up, he will speak with the full authority of God. Every word that God desires to say, he will say. But for now, he's covered in the shadow of God's hand. God speaking to Isaiah is saying, his time is not revealed. I haven't revealed him to the world. I'm covering him for now. The fullness of time has not yet come. Nevertheless, I will inevitably bring it about. Now, this is my favorite part of the passage, actually. Um, Two things I want to highlight in verse 16. So get your thinking caps on. This would be the most rigorous of like diving into the text type stuff, okay? So verse 13 and 16 actually seem to be saying the same thing at first glance. Uh, If you look at verse 13, if you were to, to put your finger on it, it says, you forgot the Lord who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth. You see that? Now leave a finger there and look at verse 16. In verse 16 Speaking to the servant, to Christ, God says, I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundation of the earth. So it seems like there's this double reference to establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth. But he's not saying the same thing in both of these passages. He's saying something actually really different. So there's two observations to point out here. The first thing is, In verse 16, where you see those words establishing, laying, and saying, they're actually communicating God's purpose for sending the servant into the world. And so it might be clear and easier to understand if you translate it, I've sent you into the world 
to establish the heavens, to lay the foundations of the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. That's why I'm sending you into the world, servant, Christ. God is telling us his purpose for sending a servant to the world. Now, the second thing that's an important observation of verse 16 is this. Most of you have an ESV Bible that probably has cross-reference notes and stuff in it. Next to the verse, uh, next to the word establishing in your text, you might see a little number, right? And in the margin somewhere, it'll tell you what the note is that the author is pointing out. What does that say? Raise your hand, Sean. Very good. Planting. I'm surprised you actually listened to me. You have such power up here. Raise your hand again. Very good. <laughs> yeah, what the author is, is communicating is that, what the translator is communicating is that in the original Hebrew, the verb to plant is actually what occurs there. So literally, in verse 16, he's saying, I've sent you into the world to plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth. Now, you might be saying, plant the heavens? That's weird. What is that? How do you plant the sky? That doesn't make any sense. Well, that's exactly the question that the translator asked. And so it's as if he said, well, I think the general sense of what Isaiah is trying to say here is that God will establish the heavens. And so let's just gloss that over as establish the heavens. But it misses the the beauty of what Isaiah is is actually saying here between verse 13, 13 and verse 16. So just stick with me for one more minute. Have you heard of a homonym? Does anyone know what a homonym is? A homonym is when you have two or more words that have the same sound but are spelled differently and have different meanings. So, for example, pray and pray, P-R-E-Y, P-R-A-Y. Um, one means to seize upon something, P-R-E-Y. The other means to intercede to God, P-R-A-Y. So an example in a sentence would be something like, while he prayed on the weak, she prayed for strength. It's, it's rhetorically powerful. You have this uh, juxtaposition between male and female, someone who's evil, someone who's good, and both of whom who are praying, but they're accomplishing very, two very different things, right? One is actually doing something bad. The other is doing something good. Verse 13 and verse 16, there's actually two homonyms that appear in these two verses, Nata and Nata in verse 16. It's like pray and pray in verse 13 and 16. The first Nata means to stretch out, to stretch out something. The second Nata means to plant. And so what God's literally saying in verse 13 and verse 16, to, to summarize it and boil it down together, he's saying, you forgot the God who nata the heavens in the beginning of the world, stretched out the heavens. But I'm sending my son into the world to nata the heavens and the earth, to plant the heavens and the earth. Now, why is he saying that? At the dawn of creation, at the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 2, verse 8, we read, the Lord God planted Natad, a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. The garden of Eden, paradise, perfection, beauty, abundance, love, life. Where the purest, deepest desires of your heart were fully satisfied. 
And ever since Adam and Eve tragically forfeited that world, God has alluded throughout the scriptures that he will reverse the effects of the curse. He will restore his people and he will plant a new Eden, a new paradise for his people to dwell in forever. Here's the mind-blowing thing about verse 16. In verse 51, in chapter 51, verse 16, in other verses, what they're saying to us is the new Eden that God will plant for us will not just be a garden planted somewhere in the east. As astounding and as amazing as that was, the new Eden that God plants will be a new heaven and a new earth. Eden will span an entire universe. That's what the phrase heaven and earth means. It literally means like heaven, earth, the thing that I'm standing on, and everything else out there. That's all of that is heaven. That's uh, sky, planets, galaxies, deep space, whatever lies beyond. It will be perfected and beautiful beyond description. The new Eden will not just be an opaque bunch of clouds where we sit and just drone on and on, praise Jesus, praise Jesus, praise Jesus throughout all eternity. We will be praising him, but there's so much more to the new heavens and the new earth. It's creation restored and amplified to the nth degree. Eden will be inconceivably vast, an infinite paradise that will be ours to explore to run wild, to dance in, to discover, delight in without end. And that ragged, meager, unimpressive servant who was slaughtered that we might have it, there he will reign as the supreme king in all of his resplendent beauty. The light of his glory will shine a trillion Google Plexi, and I looked up that number, light years in every direction. It's like a one with a hundred zeros after it. Beyond that, they're just like, it's infinity. So with that in mind, return to verse 12. I said I was going to return to verse 12. This is why God says, don't you know who you are? Those of you who are ransomed people who belong to Christ, who cannot be separated from him. Nothing can separate you now from the love of Christ. You will forever belong to him. If that is the case, and if this is what I am doing in my servant, if this is the paradise that I am creating for you, why are you so afraid in this life of man who dies? You've forgotten me. You've forgotten who I am. You should not be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that can do no more. That's how God ends this this fifth oracle, his initial response to the people. And after that, he's just launching into commands. He's, he's, He's telling them to respond to this news. So, That's the end of this verse, verse 16. The rest of the section, there's three more oracles that sort of parallel these first three uh, in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 51. Starting in verse 17 of chapter 51 is the first one, and then uh, the seventh starts in chapter 52, verse 1, and the last one in chapter 52, verse 
11. And they're all marked off by the fact that they all begin with a double command for the people to basically awake and, and realize what God has done. So real quickly, if you look at verse 17, you see the double command there. Chapter 51, verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. And he launches into a long series there. The seventh oracle begins in chapter 52, verse 1. Awake, awake, the double command there again. And then that goes all the way to verse 10 of chapter 52. And then the last one is in verse 11 of chapter 52. Depart, depart, go out from there. You might say that's a little bit different. It's not awake, awake. He's saying something else twice, depart, depart. But there's a reason for it. He's actually, when he reaches the final end, he's going to step beyond and basically saying, don't just wake up to this salvation plan that I'm accomplishing, but now act on it. Move out of your captivity. Move out of your enslavement. So let's look at Oracle 6, the sixth section here, starting verse 17. God says, wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. He says, wake yourself up, wake yourself up. And it's as if he's responding, to this, he's responding in kind to the way that the people responded and cried out to him. If you remember in verse 9, they're commanding God. They're saying, wake up, God, wake up, God. You say you're going to accomplish the salvation, wake up and do it. And God is, is, is sort of turning their cry on their head and he's saying, no, you wake up, you wake up, wake yourself up, wake yourself up to what I have done, to what I am doing, to what I guarantee I will do. And that's always the basic problem that we as sinners, as fallen people, even the redeemed have with our God. We always feel like he's not showing up, he's not accomplishing what I thought that he would. He's not working in my life the way I thought that he would. It seems as if he's asleep, and so we want to cry out to God, wake up, wake up, do something, show yourself strong. And his response is always, you wake up. You wake up to what I have already done, what I have already done for you, what I've already guaranteed to be for you. I am enough. My grace is sufficient. I have already given you enough. You wake yourself up goes on, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. This cup that he's referring to throughout the scriptures, the cup is a metaphor for the righteous wrath of God, that unprecedented, I mean, that unrepentant, unredeemed sinners will be forced to drink down. And I'll just read you off a, a couple examples. Just listen to these examples in the scriptures where the cup of God's wrath is referenced. Psalm 11, verse 6. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drink it down to the dregs. The dregs like the sediment at the bottom of the glass. The whole, every last drop, they will drink it down. Jeremiah 25, 15. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, Take from my hand this cup 
of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. This is what our Lord is referring to in the garden when he's trembling before his crucifixion. And he's crying and praying to God and saying, let this cup pass for me. Let this cup pass for me. He's not afraid of Roman soldiers. He's afraid of the wrath that he'll face from his father, the wrath of God. Do the wicked, do you and I. Verse 18 through 20, God uses a a metaphor to sort of illustrate the fate of his people, the lot of his people. Um, If they are unredeemed, if, if if Christ has not shed their blood for him, their fate And he likens them to a a woman who, a widowed woman who her husband is dead. He's no longer there to protect them. And she's had many sons. And so you you would think that with having many sons, that would be many men that, that, that are strong enough to protect her should any army or any enemy come against her. And yet she's sadly mistaken. She is as if she walks out of her house and she sees that the army has decimated all of her sons. They lie in the streets. All of them are dead. She alone is left by herself. And the enemy armies have burned down all of her possessions, all of her property. She's naked and exposed. And this is a savage enemy army that's enclosing on the city. The hopelessness that she faces is a picture of the hopelessness that we face apart from Christ. That's what verses 18 through 20 is about. Let me just read it quickly with that in mind. Speaking of this, of this widowed woman, there is none to guide her. Among all the sons she has borne, there is none to take her by the hand. Among all the sons that she has brought up, these two things have happened to you, to this woman. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword, Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. This is a picture of the fate that we all face apart from God's grace upon us. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 21, he says, Therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. They're drunk and staggering from the wrath of God. Verse 22. Thus says your Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink it no more. It's as if right when you were raising the chalice that was laced with poison to your lips, someone came in and snatched it and drank it for you. This servant, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink it no more. Verse 23, and I will put it in the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. Continuing with this image of this of this widowed woman, he's now painting a picture of these armies that have totally humiliated her. They've forced her to lie down in the mud, soiled her garments, and stepped on her back, pushing her further down into the ground. That's what God's enemies and the enemies of the people of God, that's what it's like they're constantly doing. The evil one, all of his cohorts, those who align themselves with the enemy, they're like this foreign army who comes in and humiliates these 
defenseless people. But God has said, I have taken the wrath from you. I have defeated these enemies who are against you. So in verse uh, chapter one, uh, verse one of chapter 52, again he says, wake up. Wake up. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. What he's saying is take off those soiled and, and tattered clothes from just being torn apart from by the enemy. Put on the beautiful garments that I have given you, my clothing. Be clothed in my grace, in my likeness, in my love, and resume your place by my side. For no more shall any foreign oppressor or enemy come in to harm you. You shall never be plucked from my hand. Shake yourself from the dust and arise, he says in verse 2. Be seated by my side, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing. You shall be redeemed without money. In this last statement, he's saying, as if you were of no value, your enemy has treated you like a a degenerate slave owner who sells his slave for free as if he's nothing, as if if he's nothing more than spoiled meat. It just says, ah, just, just take him, just take her. She's worthless. God says, they sold you for nothing. I don't know clever turn of phrase. He says, I will save you for nothing. What does it cost to come to Christ? How many good things must I do before he'll accept me? None. How much must I clean myself up before he'll embrace me? Not at all. Must I hide the filth of my past for him to welcome me? No. What does it cost for him to save me? Nothing, at least nothing for us. What did it cost Christ? Everything. Glory, honor, comfort, love, praise, paradise, everything. I know I'm running out of time here. I think they gave me the zero-minute card about five minutes ago, so let me jump down at least to... One more section of this, uh, this section. In verses 7 through 10, I love this, this part of, of chapter 52, verses 7 through 10. What occurs in these verses is like a, a colorful mini-drama of a, a king who's returning with his army from the battle to a frightened and anxious people who are still in the city waiting to hear the verdict of the battle. They're waiting to hear a report If the king has failed and the enemy has overrun the king's forces, then they will soon be at the gates to besiege and decimate the city. But if the king has valiantly triumphed, then his victory will usher in an unprecedented era of peace and prosperity for the entire realm. So this drama serves as an, as an illustration of one delivering this good news of God's salvation that he is accomplishing through his servant Christ, bringing this good news to the people who long to hear it. 
So first from the city, it's like the people spot way off in the distance a young man with strong legs who's racing down the mountains towards the city. And the people squinting can just barely discern that there's a, a playful spring in his step. And by that, they determine that he's bringing a favorable report. He's, he's coming with good news. And so Isaiah says in verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Next, the soldiers who are left behind in the city to defend the city that are standing up in the watchtower are able to confirm this young runner's report because from their vantage point, they can see over the, uh, just barely over the ridge that surrounds the city into the plain that extends beyond where there they can see the imperial army stretched out across the horizon, marching with precision, the king of the army seated high on his horse at the helm, and they begin to celebrate these watchmen in the tower. Verse 8, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye, all of them, they see it. They see the return of the Lord coming to Zion. And so the watchmen then shout down to uh, shout down the confirmation to these, these pensive, hesitant people down below, and pandemonium and celebration and joy erupt in the city and surge throughout the city. Verse 9, break forth together in singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. Verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm. It's reference to the arm again. As if God has finally rolled back his sleeve and shown to the world his arm, referring to the Christ. Before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So the final section, rather than saying, awake, awake, he says, depart, depart. That is, wake up to the news, this salvation, this news of salvation that God has accomplished in Christ. Not only wake up to it, but flee from your captivity. Run out, run out from the things that have ensnared you. He has empowered you to do so. He has accomplished your redemption. You are free. Depart. Run. Closes. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight. Your enemies have been fully defeated, unlike the Exodus where Pharaoh was hounding the people, and so they fled in haste. God has defeated the enemies, and so there's no need to flee in haste. There's no need to go out in flight. The Lord will always go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So if you've been... If you've been sitting with your pen and waiting for like the application point of like notes, um, the note is to listen to what God says, to just hear his repeated commands throughout this book when he's just saying, pay attention to me. I'll just quickly read them in unison. Chapter 51, verse 1, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Verse 4, give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. Verse 7, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. 
In verse 17, wake yourself up, wake yourself up, stand up, O Jerusalem. Chapter 52, verse 1, awake, awake, put on strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Verse 11, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. The Lord will go before you. He is with you. And so he's calling us here in the middle of, or towards the end of Isaiah, to continue to, to ride the currents of this vast ocean of God's love, ride the currents of grace here and experience as Louis Zamperini did when he was drifting out on the Pacific on that one day where he spoke of suffering being suspended, where hunger and thirst disappeared, and where you're unaware and unfazed by the approach of death. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word is more precious than gold. Your word is more precious than silver. You have in your mercy communicated to us from beyond our world broken into our world, dwelt among us, walked among us, revealed your holy arm to us, your servant, Christ, the one who established the heavens and the earth long ago and the one who will plant the new heavens and the new earth, the new recreated Eden, where every desire that is in our heart will be fully and infinitely satisfied. I pray that we would heed your commands in this text, that we would draw near, that we would listen, that we would tarry longer in your word, that we would tarry longer in prayer, that we would be more quick to speak a word of grace to our brothers and sisters and spur them on to one another, that we would echo your commands and and tell them, wake up, run, run, depart, run to him. Lay aside every weight and hindrance that ensnares them. And let us together run with endurance the race that is before us. The race to the very throne room of God. I pray that where fears arise in our hearts, that as we prayed earlier, fears would be stilled in Christ and in Christ alone. that our greatest treasure would not be in this world, but would be in the next. And everything that we do in this world would be in light of that treasure that you have secured for us. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.